Well, hello there, everyone. Welcome back to the Straight A Nursing Podcast. This is Nurse Mo, and today we are on episode 115, and today we're going to be talking about medications and the treatment of diabetes. So we're going beyond insulin. We are going to talk about insulin and some of the other non-insulin medications used to treat diabetes. Before we pop into that, of course, I want to take a moment to give a listener shout out who also has some advice on a really great method for studying, especially with distance education. So R. Lee writes, I have been listening to your podcast for about six months now in the final semester of my nursing program in Vancouver. Due to COVID-19, our clinical rotation was put on a two-month hiatus. Instead of getting into a slump, I initiated a study group via Zoom that has run twice a week for the past six weeks. Along the way, I have listened to your podcast to get a better understanding of topics because in my mind, teaching is the best way to deeply understand something. I have appreciated your tidbits of knowledge along the way, and I'm so thankful that you've shared your experience with thousands of people. I'm so excited to share my knowledge with others and put it into practice in just two weeks, hopefully when clinical starts again. Thanks so much. Arlie, thank you so much for taking the time to write and submit that wonderful review. And what a great idea for a way to study, especially when clinicals aren't happening and a lot of students are feeling like they're missing a huge piece of the puzzle. So way to go for taking that initiative. And yes, teaching others is the absolute best way to learn. It's the most engaged, it's the most active, and it's a really awesome use of your time, even though it takes quite a bit of time on the front end to prepare a presentation or prepare topics that you can speak to it. You're learning so much throughout that process. So maybe some of my other listeners will try something similar and really feel the benefits of that because I bet you anything, it has been not only really helpful for you, but for the others in your study group as well. So thank you again so very much. Okay, now let's dive into talking about insulin and other medications used to treat diabetes. So if you guys spend any amount of time watching trash TV like I do, are there any other 90 Day Fiance fans out there? Okay, can I just get a shout out? I love that show. Anyway, If you watch a lot of TV, or any actually, because these commercials are everywhere, then you've likely seen some of the new medications that are being used to treat diabetes that aren't traditional insulin medications. So we'll be talking about some of those today. Before we do that, let's do talk about the insulin treatments so that you have a solid understanding of those because I promise those will be on your exams and your patients in the hospital will be taking them as well. The patients in the hospital where I work, even if they're on another blood, uh, another blood pressure, another uh, blood sugar controlling medication, Basically, in the hospital, we treat them with insulin, so it's just a lot easier for us to control their blood sugar that way. It's a lot easier to prevent hypoglycemia, especially when someone's sick. Their oral intake may be uncertain, so everybody gets insulin, and I don't believe I've ever given anybody anything but insulin in the clinical setting. Of course, in outpatient, in home health, in 
um, other, you know, type of environments, you will be doing it. So we do need to talk about them as well. Okay, so let's talk about the traditional insulins for diabetes. And you guys are learning this in school or you have already learned it in school. You know that there's rapid acting, there's short acting, there's intermediate acting, and there's long acting. And it's enough to make kind of your head spin because it's a lot. And there's a lot of times to remember, you know, when it when its onset is, how fast it takes action, how long it lasts, when it peaks, etc. So just know that you're not alone in this. It is really frustrating. When I was a student, I studied it by making a table of the insulins, and that really helped me to keep it straight because, you know, you're getting asked test questions about you're giving the patient this kind of insulin, they're going to eat at this time, when do you expect their blood sugar to be lowest, etc., etc. So it can be a little bit overwhelming. But let's talk about those rapid-acting insulins first. So this is the type of insulin that we use to cover a patient's blood sugar. So when we say cover, we're talking about correcting a high glucose level. I don't know why we call it that. We're managing their sugar. We're lowering their sugar with this insulin. But the word you might hear used is cover. We're going to... Um, I need to get coverage for Mrs. Johnson's blood sugar of 187. That means I need to get insulin to manage it. So that's just some of the jargon that you'll hear in the clinical setting. So rapid-acting insulins are used to cover a high blood sugar and are intended to be injected typically about 10 to 15 minutes before the patient eats. Sometimes it's hard to coordinate that in the hospital. You're going to do your very best to meet that goal. Sometimes it happens um, that they get the injection and then they start eating because they don't want to wait. Um, you, what you want to avoid is giving the insulin and then them not eating for an hour. That would be... Um, not as good because they would possibly have a hypoglycemia from that. So typically these rapid acting insulins, again, are given about 10 to 15 minutes prior to eating. These insulins are considered analogs of that naturally occurring insulin in the body. And it's really kind of the closest thing that we have to mimic the body's own insulin. Note that these uh, fast acting insulins aren't just used to cover high blood sugars at mealtime. If a patient is on tube feeds, for instance, and is constantly getting fed around the clock, then we would check their blood sugar and correct it as needed about every four hours. That's the policy where I work. If the patient is NPO, they could still be getting a short-acting insulin if they need it. The scale might be a little less aggressive, but we're still checking blood sugar on patients who are at risk for hyper and hypoglycemia. And if they're hyperglycemic, then we want to correct that as well. And then another time a blood sugar could be checked and insulin could possibly be given is at bedtime. You may see orders for your blood sugar to be checked AC and HS, and that means AC is before meals and HS is hour of sleep or bedtime. So if that's the case, you're checking the blood sugar again at 9 p.m. or so and correcting it if needed. The caveat to that is that there can be a hypoglycemia in the middle of the night, so you often want to check that blood sugar. I believe it's like 2 or 3 a.m. I forget the exact time because I don't work night shift anymore, but it's around then, and if you're wondering why, it's because of the risk for hypoglycemia with the body's, you know, um, hormone rhythms and sleep and all of that, so you'll be checking that as well. So the key facts that you need to know about these rapid-acting insulins are some of the names, right? So uh, Humalog insulin 
or insulin Lispro, as it also is called, is one, and another one is Novolog Insulin Aspart. And what you guys need to know about uh, Humalog and Novolog are that they are clear solutions. This will come into play later when we have some that aren't clear. The onset is 10 to 15 minutes, so it's given usually about that length of time before the patient eats. The peak is one to two hours, and it lasts three to four hours, okay? So Humalog and Novolog are rapid-acting insulins used to cover a high blood sugar. We're going to check that blood sugar, say, before the patient eats, for example. Give the medication 10 to 15 minutes prior because that is its onset. It's going to peak, though, in one to two hours, so it's not like you can just never again, once you give the medication and you see the patient eat, you're not going to ignore the need to assess for signs of hypoglycemia. You absolutely are. And then it lasts for three to four hours. Okay, so let's move on to some short-acting insulins. So very similar to rapid-acting insulins, short-acting insulins are typically referred to as regular insulin. So if you hear somebody say regular insulin, that is what they are referring to. Its brand name is Humalin R or Novalin R. So the R, I, to me, that means regular. I don't know if there's a pharmacological fancy term for the R, but to me, in my mind, that denotes the regular it is the only type of insulin that can be given via IV infusion, okay? So if your patient is on a continuous insulin drip, this is what they're getting. They're getting the short-acting insulin, this Humulin R or this Novolin R. And what you need to know about these short-acting insulins are clear solution. Again, this one is clear. The onset is 30 minutes to one hour, so not as rapid as the rapid acting. It's still pretty short, though. 30 minutes to one hour for the onset, peaks in two to four hours, and lasts five to seven hours. So again, this would be that continuous insulin infusion that the patient is on because they're in the hospital for something like diabetic ketoacidosis, for example. Then we have intermediate insulin. So if you're following the path, you probably figured out that these are going to be maybe a little bit more delayed in their onset, their peak, or their duration. So let's dive into these. These intermediate insulins are used once or twice a day typically and essentially combo mixtures of insulin isophane and insulin regular. Okay, so they contain an ingredient called protamine, which causes them to last longer than the rapid and the short-acting insulins. And this is what gives them the cloudy appearance that they have, okay? So if you see a cloudy insulin, don't think that it's gone bad or it's gone south. It may just be that it is one of these intermediate insulins. And by the way, insulin isophane is the generic term for NPH insulin. So that's that intermediate acting insulin. So again, these are going to be cloudy solutions. And a big test question that you guys will have, and it will come up probably in your insulin skills checkoff, is this whole concept of mixing insulin. Some insulins you can mix together, and some insulins you cannot mix together. So the general rule of thumb is that you can mix these intermediate insulins with rapid and short-acting insulins, but how you do it is absolutely crucial, okay? So you want to drop the clear insulin first, 
And then you drop the cloudy insulin, this intermediate one. You don't want to get that protamine component into the clear insulin. You don't want to accidentally introduce it into the clear insulin. Um, So... The, there's a little phrase that we remembered when we were doing our skills checkoff, and it was because first you want to inject a little bit of air into the vial. It makes it easier to get the medication out. So we had a little phrase that we used to help us remember the order in which to do this. And I want to say it was air into cloudy, and then you pull out that syringe, air into clear, leave the syringe in place into the clear, pull up the clear insulin, and then put the syringe into the cloudy and pull up the cloudy. So it was air into cloudy, air into clear, pull up clear, pull up cloudy. And that was the order that you could do it so that you could mix the insulins into the same syringe without inadvertently introducing that protamine component into the clear insulin, into that uh, intermediate acting or that rapid acting insulin rather. Okay, so um, in the hospital where I work, we don't use these insulins. We only use the rapid-acting or the short-acting insulins. We don't use these combos, but they're definitely something that you're going to see in the outpatient setting and home health. Maybe other hospitals do use them, so you definitely do need to know them. So the need to know about these are that some of the brand names are Humalin-N or Novalin-N. And I don't know what the N stands for, probably that NPH component, that isophane component. Those solutions are cloudy, okay, like we talked about. They have an onset of one to four hours. They peak in six to 12 hours. And then they last 24 to 28 hours. Okay, so they've peaked at 6 to 12. It doesn't mean it's going to stay at that high level for the 24 to 28 hours, but there will be some action of the insulin in the body for that period of time. Okay, so that is an intermediate insulin used once or twice a day. It's a combo mixture typically of the insulin isophane, which is that NPH and some regular insulin. Okay, they contain that protamine, which causes them to last longer. And you don't want to inadvertently introduce that into your rapid acting insulin. So when you draw them up and mix them together, be very careful of that. You do not want to get cloudy insulin introduced into a clear insulin. Okay, you guys got that? Okay, let's move on to something called a basal or a long lasting insulin. So these insulins are typically given once per day. Sometimes I have seen them given twice a day, but typically they're given one time per day. And the most common that you'll see, the most common one you'll see is Lantus. I see that one all the time. Insulin Glargine, I believe, is the uh, uh, generic name. And what these do is they provide a steady, consistent rate of blood sugar control. And this is where you cannot mix. You cannot mix Lantus with anything else. So that would be a really good test question, right? To try to trick you because you might think, oh, I know I can mix some insulins. Definitely not this one. This one's never going to be mixed with anything else. When you are giving your insulins in the, uh, let's say you're giving your insulins in the morning and the patient's getting their Lantus in the morning. Some patients get their Lantus at night, but let's say your patient's getting their Lantus in the morning and their um, short-acting insulin as well. So a lot of times patients will get their Lantus, but still need that correction for um, high blood sugars with a rapid-acting insulin on top of it. So let's say you check their blood sugar, and it's 194, so you figure out how many units of 
rapid acting insulin to give. And then you go to the med room to drop your insulin and you notice that they've got their Lantus syringe there. You're not going to take that Lantus syringe and then just add the other insulin to it. No, no, no. You're going to have to give them two pokes. You're going to have to inject them twice because you're never going to mix that long-acting insulin with anything else, okay? So the need to know on this is the uh, names are Lantus, that's super common, insulin glargine. The other one, Levamir, insulin debt. I am going to butcher a lot of these generic names, you guys, and you guys have heard me do this a hundred times. Detemir, D-E-T-E-M-I-R, whatever, Levamir or Lantis. The solutions are clear. Um, You're never going to mix them with any other insulins, and they onset in about one hour, and there's no peak. It's just a nice, steady basal consistent level of blood sugar control and it lasts for 24 hours. So these are great for people that have really just chronically high blood sugars and it kind of helps level them out so that they're not having to take so many uh, units of of the rapid acting insulin and risking that, that hypoglycemia crash that could occur. Okay, and then we have combination insulin. So I've never seen any, you know, like I said, in my clinical setting, we just use the rapid acting and the Lantus and then the infusion kind, but you could see um, a combo insulin as part of the patient's regimen when they come in. Let's say you're working in an outpatient environment or you're visiting patients in their home, seeing them in a clinic, um, what have you. Um, These are typically mixtures of a rapid and an intermediate, but you'll know you're dealing with a combo in the name because it will have two numbers. It'll be like Humulin 7030 or Novalin 7030. So that'll tell you how much is the intermediate versus how much is the rapid. So just be aware that that's what that means when you see those two numbers together. Okay, so that's insulin, you guys. Um, You're probably kind of familiar with it, but let's talk now about some of the other types of medications used to treat diabetes or, you know, try to get blood sugars under control. So there's definitely more to blood sugar control than just insulin. So we have several different drug classes. Again, I will butcher these names um, and make them completely unrecognizable. I am sorry. Um, I'm doing my best. Some of these are hard to say. So the first one that we're going to talk about are the sulfonylureas. I did pretty good on that one. So what these meds do is they stimulate the pancreas to secrete insulin and increase sensitivity to insulin at those receptor sites. So thinking about that, do you think a patient with type 1 diabetes would have any benefit from taking this medication? They would not because the pancreas of type 1 diabetes is not producing any insulin. So this would be for a patient with type 2 diabetes whose pancreas can still produce and secrete some insulin. So it's going to stimulate the pancreas to do that and increase sensitivity to insulin at the receptor site. So some of these common drug names are gliburide, glipizide, and repaglinide. Those all have the same kind of sound at the end. They all end in IDE. So that might help you remember that those are the sulfonylureas, okay? So what do we need to know about this? What's the need to know information? Well, the first thing is it does require some pancreatic function, not for your type 1 diabetic. It is reduced in effectiveness 
Nope, sorry, I said that backwards. The effectiveness of warfarin is reduced if these two meds are taken together. So if your patient is on warfarin and on a sulfonylurea like gliburide, that warfarin is not going to be as effective. So you need to be aware of that. If your patient's taking it, they may be on a higher dose of warfarin or maybe they want to switch them to something else. It can cause photosensitivity as a side effect, and it has really bad side effects when the patient uh, consumes alcohol with it, causes a lot of GI distress, abdominal cramps, it causes headache, it causes hypoglycemia and flushing, so bad side effects. Patients should not drink alcohol while they're taking this medication. And the dosing of this definitely varies from patient to patient. Some get it once a day, some patients take it before each meal. Um, it really just depends on the individual and their blood sugars and how well they're controlled. Okay, so the sulfonylureas stimulate the pancreas to secrete insulin. They are commonly, uh, some common ones are gliburide, glipizide, and repaglinide. Do require that pancreatic function. If they're taking warfarin with it, the warfarin might not be as effective. Photosensitivity, headache, abdominal upset, hypoglycemia, flushing. Those are all um, some side effects, especially with alcohol. And then that dosing can be once a day or before meals. Okay. All right. So let's move on to the biguanides. And these drugs decrease glucose production in the liver and increase glucose utilization in the cells. So you kind of get a one-two punch with the biguanides. So you'll see this, this type of medication used a lot in the early stages of type 2 diabetes. And the main one here is metformin. You guys have probably heard of metformin before. It's pretty darn common. Um, one of the big things that you need to know about metformin is that you cannot take metformin and get IV contrast. It'll mess up your kidneys. So a lot of times a test question will be about the patients going for a CT scan with contrast and they're on metformin. What are you going to do? Well, typically they... Um, they may not give the metformin the day of the scan, and then they definitely will hold it afterwards, I think for about 48 hours while the kidneys are flushing out that contrast dye. So metformin and contrast dye are not good friends, okay? That is one thing that you absolutely need to know about metformin. The other thing you need to know about it is that it does require some pancreatic function. So this is not for your type 1 diabetic either. This is for your type 2 diabetic. Um, a very common undesirable side effect of metformin is diarrhea. So one of the things you can do to um, teach the patient about this is for the patient to take it with meals. And a lot of times the MD will start the dose low and slowly increase it because of that abdominal upset that occurs. A desirable side effect often is weight loss. So weight loss can occur with metformin and, and it could cause a metallic taste in the mouth. So biguanides are going to decrease glucose production in the liver and increase glucose utilization by the cells. So biguanide, the first part of that word is bi, right? B-I makes you think of two things. So think about this medication doing those two things, decreasing glucose production, increasing glucose utilization, okay? And then you just have to remember that a common biguanide is metformin. It does require some pancreatic function, could give the patient diarrhea, but they could also lose weight. 
It's going to be held with IV contrast, and they could have a metallic taste in their mouth as an undesirable side effect as well. Okay, so let's move on to something I'm going to butcher now. Meglitinides, that's an M if you couldn't understand me. Meglitinides also stimulate the release of insulin, but the mechanism of, ac of action with this one has to do with potassium and calcium channels. So we're not going to get into a whole big thing about that, but the meglitinides are often used in conjunction with metformin or a, another drug called a thiazolid. Wow. Wow, you guys. Thiazolidinodione. Bam. I just crushed that one, didn't I? No, I didn't, but it's a really long word, and we're going to get to talking about it in a minute. But just know that the meglitinides are often used in conjunction with metformin or this other class of drug, which is Actos. I'll talk about the brand name. How's that? Commonly used uh, meglitinides are Starlix or Gluconorm. I love the name Gluconorm. That just makes you totally get what this drug is all about. Gluconorm totally normal glucose. Um, so meglitinides stimulate the release of insulin, often used in conjunction with metformin or a drug like Actos. Um, common meglitinides are Starlix and Gluconorm. So the need to know about this drug class is that it also does require some pancreatic function and its effects are increased by a lot of other drugs. So warfarin, NSAIDs, semvastatin, those are just a few. So this kind of drug, you'd have to really um, know what other medications the patient is taking to understand if it is a safe medication for that patient. And its effects are decreased by a lot of other drugs as well, such as corticosteroids, thyroid medications, and calcium channel blockers. So a lot of drug interactions with meglitinides. Okay, let's try this one again. Thiazolidinide. <sighs> Forget it. Okay, the act <laughs> Actos and Avandia are the brand names. You guys, I'm sorry. I try so hard to pronounce these generic uh, drug names for you. You probably think I am just a goofball. Um, but Actos and Avandia... So the generic names for this drug class is easy to recognize because it ends in Z-O-N-E. And this is, um, Avandia is rosiglitazone and Actos is pioglitazone. So if you see zone and you see that the patient has diabetes, you might think, oh, they're on one of those thiazolido words that nobody can ever say. So these drugs improve the sensitivity to insulin. So insulin, of course, then must be present. So would this be used in a patient with type 1 diabetes? No, you'll often see these drugs used in combination with other anti-diabetics like metformin, which is that sulfonylurea and or just um, injected insulin. So what you need to know about Actos, Evandia, the word that no one can pronounce is that they require insulin in order to work. So type 2 diabetics are going to benefit from this. You cannot give it to patients who have liver disease, so it will not be used for those patients. It can cause life-threatening congestive heart failure, so it has a pretty significant side effect profile, and it is once per day dosing. 
I've only seen this used a few times in uh, my patients, and I'm, I'm not giving it to them, but I see that it's on their med rec list when they come in. So not as common, definitely, as like metformin, for example. Okay, let's move on to something I think I can pronounce, you guys, alpha-glucosidase inhibitors. Can you imagine going to pharmacy school? You would be so good at just pronouncing things. It would be one of your special skills. Okay, alpha-glucosidase days inhibitors are used for type 1 diabetes. And this drug class of meds is used to inhibit the release of the alpha glucosidase enzyme, which reduces that absorption of dietary glucose. So uh, a common one is called Precose, for a generic name, Acarbose. And what you need to know about this drug is that it's used for type 1 diabetes along with dietary therapy for them. It can cause some abdominal pain. It can cause diarrhea. It can cause flatulence. So not very pleasant. Um, it may decrease the absorption of digoxin, which if you haven't learned about digoxin yet, it's a drug, it's a cardiac drug, and you would not want the... Um, amounts of this drug to fluctuate too much in the system. Um, you would avoid using it with amylase and pancretin, probably because it works on an enzyme and it has to do with absorption, so it may interfere with those enzymes as well. Sign of overdose with a carbose or precose is an increase in flatulence um, or diarrhea and GI discomfort. It's taken once per day with a meal. Okay, now we have enzyme inhibitors. So this drug class, enzyme inhibitors, they're used along with diet and exercise to help keep blood sugar under control in patients who have type 2 diabetes. So Genuvia is a common one and might be one of the ones in the commercials. I feel like it's pretty common and I may have seen it um, while watching 90 Day Fiance. So this is another one that you'll sometimes see used along with metformin, along with actose, or um, a sulfonylurea. It works by slowing the inactivation of incretin hormones, I-N-C-R-E-T-I-N, incretin hormones, which play a role in glucose homeostasis. Okay, so I'll say that again. It works by slowing the inactivation of incretin hormones, which play a role in glucose homeostasis. So the need to know about Januvia, which is an enzyme inhibitor, is that it is not used in type 1 diabetes. This is for type 2 diabetics only. It can increase digoxin levels. So again, there's that digoxin. What happens when we have increased digoxin efficacy? Your patient could have digoxin overdose and common test question for digoxin overdose. I've talked about it before because it's just such a classic example. So you guys may have already heard me talk about this, but on your test, if the patient has a bradycardia, has a uh, nausea and is seeing yellow, three classic signs of digoxin overdose. Okay. Extra bonus tip for you here today. Genuvia also is excreted in the urine. So it's used very cautiously in patients who have renal impairment and it's a take once per day with or without food. Okay. So that's Genuvia. It can increase digoxin levels, use cautiously in renal impairment and take with or without food for diabetic type two only. Okay, and then a 
a newer class of drugs that is getting a lot of attention are the SGL2 inhibitors. So these drugs work by increasing renal glucose excretion, increasing insulin sensitivity and uptake in muscle cells. They decrease gluconeogenesis and improve the release of insulin from the pancreas. So that's like, that's the big guns. This drug is doing an awful lot. So the common one is Invokana. I'd say the generic name, but this is just not, I'm not going to embarrass myself anymore. But Invokana, I believe I've seen commercials for this one as well. It's pretty common and is used in coordination with diet and exercise to improve blood glucose control in patients with type 2 diabetes. So it's a PO medication for type 2 diabetes. It's taken daily before that first meal of the day. It is not to be used in renal impairment. So if your patient has kidney disease, they're probably not going to be on Invokana. It could cause some orthostatic hypotension, and it has a common unpleasant side effects of a genital infection and frequent urination. So I think that infection risk has to do with how much sugar is coming out in the urine. So that's just like a breeding ground for bacteria. And the hypotension, I believe, is because of that um, renal excretion of sugar. There's just extra renal output, extra urinary output. Um, So that can cause volume depletion and hypotension. So that, again, was SGLT2 inhibitors. And it does a bunch of work, you guys. It increases renal glucose excretion, increases insulin sensitivity and uptake in those muscle cells. It decreases gluconeogenesis and improves the release of insulin from the pancreas. So this is the big daddy. Invokana can basically do it all. And there's another one that is pretty recent called Farxiga. I think that's how you say it. F-A-R-X-I-G-A, pretty new, Farxiga. I haven't seen it yet, but that doesn't mean that people aren't out there using it. I think it's pretty recently FDA approved. And let's go back one. There was another, uh, let me see. Did we talk about GLB inhibitors already? Nope, that's next. Okay, so we have GLP, rather, GLP inhibitors. So we have some other injectables for um, diabetes control that are not insulin. We have these incretin mimetics, and maybe it's incretin, but I pronounce it incretin because it's my podcast and I can say things however I want. (laughs) Ha ha. Okay, so we have the GLP-1 receptor agonists. And what these do are mimic the action of incretin leading to insulin secretion and better blood glucose control. You notice I I changed how I said it, didn't you? Because I couldn't stand it. I had to go look and figure out how to pronounce it. Incretin. Incretin. Okay, there we go. So there are a handful of drugs in this class, but the two most common and I think the two most interesting are Bayetta and Trulicity. And I know you guys have seen these commercials and they're fantastic. I love these diabetes commercials. Those people are so happy. I mean, it's just so inspiring. So Bayetta, what you need to know about this medication is that it is given sub-Q, but it is not insulin. So don't let that fool you. The dosing for it is twice per day. 
And it's typically given within 60 minutes of a morning and an evening meal. Some very unpleasant side effects common to this whole um, enterprise of trying to control blood sugar is diarrhea, nausea, and vomiting. So again, that GI upset. And it can also decrease absorption of PO medications, especially um, anti-infective medications and oral contraceptives. So definitely need to be aware of that if your patient is taking Bietta. And then Trulicity, which is another one, um, the need to know about this is it's also given sub-Q but is not insulin. Dosing on this one is once per week. So these people in the commercials are even happier than the Bietta people in their commercial because they're only taking it once a week. It's prescribed when diet and exercise aren't enough to control blood sugar levels, but maybe they don't want to go on to insulin just yet. Some common side effects are stomach pain, again, diarrhea, loss of appetite. And because of that, loss of appetite could aid in weight loss a bit. There is a new GLP-1 oral medication that is pretty recent called Ribelsis. Um, there's also another injectable called Ozempic, which I know you've seen those commercials for that as well. So just be aware that there's different injectables. They're not insulin, but they do help control blood sugar. And then there's a new oral GLP-1 inhibitor called Ribelsus, R-Y-B-E-L-S-U-S, that you may see. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about some hormones that are not insulin, but that are used to treat diabetes. So... Pramlintide, pramlintide, also Simlin, S-Y-M-L-I-N. This is a hormone that works by slowing gastric emptying, suppressing glucagon, and regulating food intake. So one of the side effects of this drug is anorexia. Okay, so be aware of that. You'll see Simlin used in diabetics whose blood sugar cannot be well controlled with insulin. Um, may also see it used with sulfonylureas and metformin, which is a biguanide, okay? The Simlin need to know is that it is given sub-Q, but it is not insulin. A common side effect, nausea and anorexia. So again, lots of GI stuff, right? Avoid using with other meds that decrease GI motility, okay? So mainly those anticholinergics. You probably wouldn't use it in coordination with an anticholinergic. It's not to be used along with a carbose and you will give it immediately before the patient eats, okay? And then we have Traceba. Oh, I love this commercial, you guys. I, I, it's taking every bit of my control to not sing the song that goes on this commercial. Um, also called Insulin Degludec. It's a long-acting basal insulin. So in a way, it is a lot like Lantus. This biggest advantage of Traceba over Lantus appears to be that there's less incidence of nighttime hypoglycemia. It's also a bit more expensive than uh, Lantus. So you probably see your patients on Lantus, but if they've got super good insurance, they may be on Traceba. So your need to know about Traceba is that it's a long-acting basal insulin. It's got less incidence of nighttime hypoglycemia than Lantus, so that is a benefit of it. 
drawback is it's super expensive. Missed doses can be taken within eight hours of the next dose. So there's a lot of flexibility with it, whereas Lantus is pretty strict. You take it at the same time every single day. And the dose lasts up to 42 hours. So again, bit more flexible dosing than Lantus. So that's some of the benefit of it and why people like it because they can just kind of go on about their life and the people in that commercial, I think they're the happiest of all of them. Okay, let's talk a little bit about inhaled insulins. And if you guys have not heard about this yet, it's just a little bit mind-blowing. I did not know these existed until... Um, I don't even think I heard about them in nursing school. It wasn't until after I was working as a nurse that I even heard about inhaled insulins. So um, in 2014, the FDA approved an inhaled rapid acting insulin called Afrezza, which sounds like a great Italian restaurant, doesn't it? It's used in patients who have both type 1 diabetes or type 2 diabetes. But if the patient has type 1, they also have to be on um, a long acting insulin such as Lantus. So it comes in three cartridges. So the patient gets a blue cartridge, which is four units of insulin. The I think the green cartridges are equal to eight ins, uh, insulin units, and the yellow one is equal to 12 units. So the patient's basically um, mix and match to come up with the right number of insulin units that they need for their dose. So obviously the dosing can't be super specific. It has to be some combination of these three um, colored um, cartridges that the patient has. So like if someone needs six units of insulin, there's no six unit cartridge. They can take four units or they can take eight units, but they can't take six units. So it's not as specific as taking insulin would be. Uh, because this is an inhaled powder, definitely wouldn't be using it with patients who have lung issues. Um, your patient may even have to have lung function tests done periodically if they're taking this. But if the patient's like deathly afraid of needles, has a huge um, phobia of needles, maybe they have a really severe, I don't know if this would even be the case, but I don't know, what if the patient had that um, bleeding disorder where they, you know, they get one tiny nick and then they bleed to death. Does that, is that is that even real? Or is that like a, I mean, I know it's real. I know patients have like... Um, uh, bleeding disorders, but I saw a movie once when I was a kid and this guy got like a tiny nosebleed and I think he died from it. So maybe it can happen. But anyway, maybe there's a reason why the patient can't be getting any injections of any kind. So they could be on this inhaled insulin. So the need to know about Afrezza is that it's an inhaled rapid acting insulin. It has less flexibility with dosing because of those cartridges. It's taken right before eating and you have to watch very closely for bronchospasm in these patients. That was intense, you guys, between my horrible pronunciations and the 500 meds I just talked you through. Whew, let's all take a deep breath. Okay, so let's go back and we'll do a little bit of pod quiz because I know you really like pod quiz. We'll do a little bit. I know there was a lot that we covered, but let's just do a little bit of pod quizzing, okay? So the way this works is I ask a question, I pause for a moment and give you time to answer it so it's like doing flashcards for your ears. So let's say we have a intermediate insulin. Is it clear or is it cloudy? That intermediate insulin is cloudy. Excellent. What would be the onset time of an intermediate insulin? 
And it's okay if you don't remember because it was a lot to go through. That was about one to four hours of the intermediate insulin. Okay, how about the rapid acting insulin? What's the onset of a rapid acting insulin? So that's about 10 to 15 minutes, okay? So you got to act fast. And how long does a rapid acting insulin last? It's going to last about three to four hours. You guys are doing fantastic. And then what kind of insulin is Lantus, also known as insulin glargine? That is a long-acting insulin, also called a basal insulin. What is the peak of Lantus? Okay, that was a trick question. There's no peak. And if you guys got it, awesome. There's no peak. It's a steady state. Awesome job. Okay. Um, the sulfonylureas, glyburide, glypozide, and repaglinide, do they require pancreatic function? Yes, they do. And just as a reminder, they stimulate the pancreas to secrete insulin and increase sensitivity to insulin at the receptor sites, okay? Um, this is the one that has that bad side effects with alcohol. Okay, biguanides are going to decrease glucose production in the liver and do you remember what their other action was? They increase glucose utilization by the cells. So the common one is, do you remember the most common biguanide that's prescribed? That's metformin. So metformin is used a lot. What are some of the side effects that a patient taking metformin might have? Yeah, they could have diarrhea and they could have some weight loss or a metallic taste in their mouth. And what are you going to hold? Um, well, if the patient gets what treatment would you hold them metformin? That was kind of worded poorly. If they get a um, IV contrast, so you would hold it after IV contrast. Okay, the maglitinides. Stimulate the release of insulin, but the mechanism of action has to do with potassium channels and calcium channels. If you remember, this was that Starlix and that Gluconorm. Do these drugs require pancreatic function? Yes, they do. And what else can I tell you about this one? There, this is the one where the effects are increased by a lot of other drugs or the effects are decreased by a lot of other drugs. So there's a lot of drug interactions. And then the word that cannot be pronounced, Actos and Avandia. This one, does it require insulin in order to work? Does there need to be pancreatic function? Yes, there does. So remember that about Avandia and Actos. And then for a carbose or precose, as it's also called, um, this may decrease the absorption of what important cardiac medication? Digoxin. Excellent. Very good. You guys are doing amazing. And then do you guys remember for Januvia what that does with digoxin levels? So Januvia can increase digoxin levels. And is it used in type 1 diabetes or type 2 diabetes? Genuvia is used for 
uh, type 2 diabetics, along with diet and exercise. Awesome. The SGL2... SGLT2 inhibitors, of which Invokana is one. This is the one, remember, the big daddy that does all of those things. Is it used for type 1 or type 2? And that would be type 2. Very good. Is it a pill or is it an injection? That is a PO medication. Very, very good. And this is the one that causes that glucose excretion. So what side effects are, are you going to watch out for related to that? There were two of them. The um, hypotension, which could be a result of that frequent urination and the fluid losses, and the genital infections. Very good. And then we have the increase. Incretin mimetics, ooh, that was good, which is, um, and the GLP-1 receptor agonist, okay? So that's the bieta. And is that an injection or is that a pill? Bieta is an, an injection, but it's not insulin. So the unpleasant side effects are all kind of GI in nature, diarrhea, nausea, and vomiting. Trulicity is another one. It's given sub-Q, not insulin. Do you remember the dosing, how often the patient takes trulicity? The patient's taking this once per week. That's general dosing for trulicity. Very good. And then we have that hormone, Simlin, that is also given sub-Q, also not insulin. Um, Definitely don't want to take it along with which other of these meds that we've talked about. That was a carbos, not to take it along with that or any meds that decrease GI motility. And then we have Traceba, which is that long-acting basal insulin. What would be a little bit of the benefit of that if you were choosing it over Lantus? And, you, and, and cost wasn't an issue. What would be some of the benefits? Yes, awesome, you guys. So that less incidence of nighttime hypoglycemia and that little bit more flexibility with the dosing, that you can take those missed doses within eight hours of the next um, and dosing lasts for up to 42 hours. And then what kind of insulin would you want your patient to take if they needed insulin but they were deathly afraid of needles. That would be that inhaled insulin, the Afrezza. Okay, you guys, that was awesome. You did amazing. I apologize again for my bungled pronunciations. I'll practice that. I've been talking for something like six hours already today because I'm recording a bunch of podcasts all in a row. So I'm just going to blame it on that. I will see you back here next week. I haven't got the topic for that finalized just yet. I'm going to do that right now. So it's a surprise. So I will see you back here next week. Same time, same place, new episodes every single Thursday. And while I have you here, I just want to, I know a lot of you are starting school very soon or um, have just started your program. If you've got a dosage calculations exam that you have to take and pass like with 100% or 98% or some really high grade and you're nervous about that and you're not sure how to approach dosage calculations, I do have a dosage calculations course that is open for enrollment all the time. So I will link to that 
in the show um, episode notes so that you can find it. It is absolutely awesome. It takes you step by step by step from the very basics of dosage calculations all the way up to the trickiest dosage calculations and all the ways your professors will try to trip you up with convoluted questions and all of that. You'll be absolutely untrickable by the time you get through this course. So check that out if dosage calculations is something that's on your radar that you want to get really confident at. I will leave the link for you and I will see you back here again next week. Bye guys. This podcast is brought to you by Straight A Nursing. 